And for that, you can go ahead and turn to John 21. We are nearing the end of our journey through John's wonderful Gospel. John 21. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 14. Hear now the Word of the Lord. After this, and that is after the resurrection appearances that happened that first week after Jesus rose from the dead, after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, guys, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Now God, Father, as this was given for the purpose of making Jesus known to disciples, would You make Your Son known to us this morning? Chase away our distractions, internal and external. Open the ears of every hearer. And may we receive from You through Your Word for Christ's sake. Amen. John 21 is a kind of epilogue to this Gospel as a whole. The heart of the Gospel's message was reached... Uh, After the resurrection in chapter 20, when John says in those last two verses, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And John could have just ended the story there. But he adds this last little bit, chapter 21, because he wants us to see two things. First, he wants us to see our need as disciples for the ongoing presence of Jesus. If we're going to accomplish anything, we'll look at that this morning. And then second, 
he wants us to see Christ's grace in restoring fallen believers like Peter, calling them back to faithfulness. And Lord willing, we'll see that next week. But this morning, let's look at our need for fellowship with Jesus. The first thing that we need to see is the absolute futility of the disciples without Jesus. There in those first three verses. Now notice how from the get-go he tells us that this is what he's talking about. Look at verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now notice that word revealed used twice. It carries a lot of weight throughout John's Gospel. It has to do with how it is God makes himself known to us through Jesus. The first time we saw this word was back in John 1, verse 18, where the writer says, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God, that's Christ, the one at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. He has made Him known to us. God is a revealing God. God is a God who makes Himself known to us. If He didn't, we couldn't know Him at all. But He has. He's done so for our good and for His glory, and He has done so above all in the person of His Son. And so after the resurrection, Jesus revealed Himself again in this way. So here's what happened. Verse 2 says that seven of them are on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Now Tiberias is just uh, the Roman name for the same lake, but it's the Lake of Galilee. They're there waiting for Jesus to show up. Maybe you remember how after His resurrection, Jesus had told them a couple of times to go to Galilee and there they would see Him. For example, Matthew 28.10, He said to the women, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see Me. Now, I'd always imagine that they probably just went together in a group to Galilee. I mean... But the fact that they didn't makes more sense. Remember, as far as they know, they're still wanted men. The death of Jesus was only a couple of weeks before this, and the authorities surely are looking for them. It just makes sense that they would split into smaller groups, two and three at a time, to make their way back to Galilee to meet with Jesus. And so these seven have made it. They've come together, and they're waiting for Jesus. And while they're waiting for Jesus... Verse 3 says, they get hungry. Uh, I'm going fishing, Simon says. They say, well, we'll go with you. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this little fishing trip. Some commentators will say that, well, this, this is Peter abandoning his calling. You know, Jesus called him to be a disciple, a fisher of men, but, but now he's filled with doubt and he's thinking about leaving the ministry to go back to fishing for fish. But there really is nothing in this passage whatsoever to make us think that. In fact, Jesus, when He comes, doesn't rebuke Peter at all. No, no, the far simpler explanation is Peter got hungry. I mean, they're waiting for Jesus. Jesus has not showed up yet, nor have the other disciples. And so what would be more natural for a fisherman with an empty belly standing by a lake full of fish than to go fishing? I'm going fishing, he says. The others say, well, we'll come too. And they do. 
And yet, despite all of their skill and experience as fishermen, they fish all night and catch not a thing. And now the point that John is making begins to come into view. You see, the point is not that Peter shouldn't have gone fishing. The point is that Peter and these others are here without Jesus. As Edmund Klink said it, the problem is not the absence of fish, the problem is the absence of Jesus. Without Him, even things that they were good at become empty and barren. Listen, this is a picture of the barrenness of life apart from the presence of Jesus. Do you understand that? John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is an emptiness to all earthly pursuits. Didn't we see that in our Grace Bible Conference on Ecclesiastes, there's an emptiness to all earthly pursuits, even legitimate pursuits, even good things when pursued apart from Christ. And that's not just true of unbelievers, by the way. It is true of believers as well. In fact, perhaps even more so. We were not made to be satisfied in this world without Him. We were not made for life apart from him. Come on, haven't you felt that? Surely every Christian here has experienced this to some degree. I mean, I know that I have. Too many times I have pursued life without Christ. And every time that I've done it, I wish I could just learn this every time I've come up empty. Haven't you? Christianity without Christ, morality without Christ, Family without Christ, work without Christ, life without Christ, even the very best things without Christ are empty and fruitless in the end. And oh, how we need to understand that. And church, Rockport, we need to learn that here as well. Whatever our plans are for the future as we look around to what God would have us do to to reach this area, to, to bring people to Christ to prepare our young people to live for Him their whole lives, to build strong families, you know, to make room in this or some other building for others to join with us. None of that, none of that will bear fruit apart from the presence and blessing of Christ. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Which, as we think of that, brings us to the second thing. And that is the abundant blessing that comes only with the presence of Christ. Verses 4 to 6. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, guys, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. Now this is a great scene. Notice first how Jesus takes the initiative by stepping right into the middle of their situation to make Himself known. It says, right as the dawn was breaking, they look up and they see Him standing there. 
Now, they don't recognize that it's him at first. After all, it is very early in the morning, very little light, uh, mist perhaps rising off of the water, and he's, he's over a hundred yards away. But the point is, he came to them. Even when they didn't realize that it was him, even before they saw that it was him, he was present. Oh, dear Christian, do you realize this is your situation? How many times have you been blind to His presence? At the beginning of your day, the middle of your day, the end of your day. But but do you doubt that He was there? Do you doubt that He has come to you? In fact, that He is always coming to you. It's funny, the word they use here of Jesus standing at the shore is the same word that was used back in chapter 20 for Jesus' sudden appearance to the disciples in the upper room. They just look up and boom, there He is. Christian, look up and see Him. Get your nose out of the phone. Get your nose out of whatever it is you think is so important and look up and see Him. Second, when they see Jesus, He calls them to acknowledge their barrenness without Him. Verse 5, again, Jesus said to them, children, uh, it's just a colloquialism, guys, don't you have any fish? And they answer, no. Now, now the way Jesus asked the question actually demands a no response. Greek has a way of asking the question in a way that tips off what the answer is expected to be. And here it's, well, you could translate it, you guys don't have any fish, do you? And actually, he doesn't even use the word fish here. He uses a word that means a little something to eat. And in the context, clearly it's fish, but the point is, so, so after all this, don't you have anything to fill your empty bellies? You see, Jesus knows their futility. And He wants them to see that. Listen to me. He knows yours. You think He doesn't, but He does. He knows Yours. He knows how hard you've worked on that thing that seems so important. And for what? I mean, life without Him, it's empty. And, and, and He wants you to see that. He wants you to acknowledge that. And then He wants you to listen to Him so that He can fill it. So that He can fill you. As He does for them in verse 6. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they did, and there was. So what made the difference? Well, there's the third thing, rather obviously. The presence of Jesus is what makes all the difference in the world. No, it wasn't which side of the boat. There's commentators that was kind of surprised. They got into this, well, it was the right side of the boat. You know, that's the side of fortune. No, <laughs> it wasn't the side of the boat. It was Him. Again, the real issue here is not the absence of fish, but the absence of Jesus. They thought they were in need of fish, but what they really needed was the presence of Christ. Hey, listen, how often is that true of us? What are you seeking to be full of? 
this morning? What are we as a church seeking to be full of? What are we seeking to be filled with in our homes? Oh, you know, if only we could have more activities, uh, more fun, more things to do. If only we, we had more money. If only we had more, more time for vacation. If only we had better opportunities. If only we had more likes on social media. I mean... Think of all those things that we try to fill our nets with to gain some sense of significance and yet we come up empty time and time again. But one word from Him as we act in obedience and He fills us. You say, well, they didn't even know it was Him yet. No, they didn't, did they? Not consciously. And yet in John 10.27, Jesus says... My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. You see, there is an impulse in the heart of the true child of God who, upon hearing Christ's voice, will follow Him. They hear and obey. And the blessing follows the obedience. Did you get that? Dear child of God, Set your heart for that kind of instant obedience. When I hear the voice of Jesus, when I see it on the Scripture page, when I I know that He is commanding, I want to follow. Cultivate a heart of sensitivity to Jesus every morning. This is where I think a daily time in the Word and prayer is so important, not because you're a legalist, because you want to hear His voice. You want to cultivate a heart that knows and follows Him. Because fourth, once they knew that Jesus was present, the disciples run to Him. Well, swim to Him as the case may be. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. John, the beloved disciple, is the first to see him. And really, does that surprise you at all? This has been John's character all along. You remember how at the empty tomb, it was John who got there first, but waited a bit. Peter went in ahead of him. But as soon as John walks into the tomb and sees the empty grave clothes... John 28 says he got it. He believed. And now here he is. He sees a net full of fish and instantly his mind returns perhaps to that earlier meeting with Jesus on this very shore three years ago when Jesus did pretty much the same thing in Luke chapter 5. Remember that? They fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus shows up and says, cast over there. And suddenly their nets are full to breaking. And John is the first to make the connection. And he says, it's the Lord! Look! John is the first to see it, but true to form, Peter is the first to act on it. As soon as Peter heard the words, it is the Lord, he grabbed his cloak, tucked it into his belt because he'd stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Again, just like at the tomb, John got there first, but Peter was the first to barge in. John is the first to see that it's Jesus, but Peter is the one who hitches up his bridges and jumps in the lake to swim to Jesus. Hitches up his bridges. That's my loose translation. But it probably means that he took his cloak, 
wrapped it around him, tucked it into his belt. That's really the picture here because you can't swim with a flowing robe all around your ankles. But he also didn't want to leave it on the boat because he didn't want to appear before Jesus dressed in a loincloth only. right? And so he, he grabs it, hitches it around his belt, and swims to Jesus. But here's the thing that really impresses me. Peter's zeal to get to Christ. Peter literally throws himself into the lake. He wasn't willing to wait for the rest of them to get their stuff together and drag that net to shore. He wants Jesus now. You see, there is a zeal for the presence of Christ here that puts me to shame. One of the things I have noticed as I age is how easy, I'm not that old, but you know. But I've noticed how easier it becomes for the zeal that I knew for Christ in earlier days to begin to cool. I don't want it to. I, I, I am praying that it doesn't. And you pray for me as well. But I've seen it too many times, haven't you? Believers who were zealous for Christ in their youth, believers who were eager for the things of God whose passion began to cool. And I'm concerned that really has almost become one of the hallmarks of this present age, at least in this country. A cold indifference to the things of God even among those who profess Him. A lack of zeal for Christ and for His kingdom where, you know, the presence of, of Christ, you know, we can take it or leave it. We're fine if He shows up, but if He doesn't, it's no big deal. And so we go weeks without any, any felt sense of His presence, any awareness that He has drawn near, maybe years. And it doesn't seem to bother us. Or we act like it, right? Because we're not moved to prayer by that fact. We don't seek Him earnestly. Lord, would You come among us? We're not scanning the seashore, looking for His presence, hoping that He will make Himself known. We're not like Peter who throws himself into the lake and races for Christ at the very first evidence of His presence. I mean, Peter is to be commended here. Peter is to be commended for wanting to be in the presence of Christ so bad he literally will throw himself in the lake. Are you like that? Do you want to be with Him so bad that you will not let anything stand in your way? Or do lots of things stand in your way? Young people, young adults, I'm thinking you in your 20s and 30s, do you understand this? Now is the time for you to cultivate this kind of passion for Christ. See, if you're indifferent to the things of God now in your youth, it's not going to get any easier for you going forward. If anything, in fact, it's going to get harder as you begin to add responsibilities and burdens to your life and thorns and thistles begin to spring up all around you. You need to cultivate this heart now, this driving passion for the presence of Christ. You need to do this now while you're young. And yes, yes, you who are older need to do it too. But I'm talking to them. 
Make it a priority to spend time with Him, to look for Him, to run to Him, and to never be satisfied, to have a life that goes on without Him. Make His presence your priority. As soon as Peter realizes that Jesus is on the shore, that's where Peter wants to be. And he swims the 110 yards to get there. The other disciples follow as quickly as they can, but they're all drawn to Him because that's what disciples do. Which brings us to the third thing. That is to simply see the simple, satisfying joy of fellowship with Jesus. Verse 9, when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. One fish, actually, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went on board and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to them after he had raised from the dead. Again, the point, Jesus is making himself known to his disciples. That's his goal. And he is doing that through a fellowship meal. And so notice some things here. Notice first, Jesus has already prepared a place for them. I mean, as soon as they get off the boat, there's a charcoal fire, the smell of fish frying, and bread baking. Don't miss this. He's made preparation for them. Just as He's promised us. John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be. Do you understand? Jesus wants fellowship with His people. Jesus is preparing a place for us, yes, eternally, but He's also preparing a place for us daily. Every morning, Christian, when you wake up, understand Jesus is there. And He's prepared to meet with you and feed you as you draw near. Now, that smell of charcoal, I think, had to remind Peter of something. It had to remind him of his failure when he denied Christ three times. Do you remember that that also took place and John called our attention to the fact that there was a charcoal fire there as well? And here he reminds us there is a charcoal fire. Well, smell is a powerful reminder, isn't it? Peter's got to think about that moment. And yet in the very place that Peter failed Jesus, Jesus welcomes Peter and feeds him. And we're going to see next week, restores him. Oh dear Christian, don't let past failures keep you from drawing near to Christ for fellowship. The dumbest thing you can do is when you have sinned, when you've failed, when you've gotten tangled up in some stupid thing, I know parents, I use the word dumb and stupid in one sentence. It's okay. Because that's how we act sometimes. The dumbest thing you can do is then stay away from fellowship, stay away from worship because I'm not worthy to be there. No, of course you're not worthy, but come on. 
And you'll find Jesus preparing for you. Second, not only does Jesus feed them, notice He also affirms the value of their obedience to Him in verse 10. Now we're not told where Jesus got the fish and bread. Did He just miraculously call them into existence? Maybe. He can do that, you know. But He has everything ready for them as soon as they get off the boat. Then, verse 10, He commands them to go back and get some of the fish they have caught. (laughs) Yeah, they caught. I mean, Jesus sent those fish into the net, but He used their efforts to get them to the breakfast table. And I really do think that He is teaching them something here. Not only about His power and ability to provide, but also about the value of their work in obedience to Him. Think about it. Jesus is about to send them out into the world to make disciples of all nations. That's one of the big things that comes next. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. Yet how are they going to do that? How are we going to do that? Only in obedience to His commands. Only by listening to and obeying what He says. You know what's interesting? Do this. Read through the Gospels, all four of them. Notice these men are fishermen. That's their profession. Presumably they're good at it. Yet as you read those four Gospels, try to notice how many fish they catch in the New Testament apart from Christ. I'll give you the answer. Not one. Only in obedience to Him does their work bear fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. And so again, Peter is quick to obey here. You've got to love that. He jumps up into the boat and holds the net around and it's full of fish, 153 big ones. I mean, somebody took the time to count. That again raises all kinds of speculation in the commentaries. I mean, what's the 153 mean? There's all kinds of crazy theories about that, going all the way back to the church fathers. I mean, uh, Origen, Jerome, even Augustine gets in on it. I mean, 153 is divisible by three, so maybe this is a reference to the Trinity, or 153, uh, some hidden numerological message. And even to this very day, uh, one of the commentaries I respect, he goes into like three pages on, on what the 153 means. You know what I think the 153 means? I think it means there were 153 fish in the net. Big fish, by the way. And a fisherman like John is going to remember the number because what fisherman out there doesn't remember the details of the biggest catch of his life? No, if there is a point to this number, I think it is simply to show us the magnitude of the catch once Jesus gets involved. When we obey Christ as a church and do what He says, depending upon Him and His power and not our own ingenuity, He gives the catch. I mean, He knows where the fish are. (laughs) He knows how to get them into the net. By the way, that net won't break. The Gospel will hold. Maybe I'm pushing that a little bit, but I think it works. And so instead of trying to be cute and clever and doing all the tricks I see people in churches doing these days to get people into the pews with entertainment and with this and that thing that has nothing to do with the Gospel, dear church, let's just walk with Jesus. 
Let's seek His presence. Let's pray and obey His voice and watch Him work through us. Third, Jesus then calls them to come in fellowship with Him. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. I love this. Would you notice that they are no longer just workers that He is sending out to get a job done? But they are His friends. And He is loving them. Remember John 15, verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us into friendship. Yeah, we we, we are to follow Him. Yes, we must obey Him. But, dear church, we do that as His friends. He has called us out of darkness in this empty world into a soul-satisfying fellowship with Him. I mean, listen to Him. Come and eat, He says. Eat breakfast. There's really a single word in Greek, so just come and eat. Kind of like taste and see in Psalm 34. Because eating in the New Testament was almost always a matter of intimate friendship and personal experience. You you don't eat from across the room. Maybe at Lambert's when they throw you a roll, but but even then, you've got to get it close to you. You've got to draw near to the food and near to those you're sharing the meal with. And as you draw near to Jesus feeding you, you draw near to Him. It's a matter of friendship and personal experience. You sup with Him. And so Jesus invites us to come personally and experience His presence. To, to come to know Him intimately. To enjoy Him. Listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with the whole Jesus thing, let me, let me give this advice. Stop trying to figure Him out from a distance. Stop regarding Him from afar like some object you can study in a telescope. Just draw near. Come to Him as He bids you. Taste and see that He is good. And it's in that taste that you'll know Him as they do here. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, none of them bothered to ask, who are you? I mean, He's the resurrected Lord. Everything's changed. Nobody says, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They'd experienced His grace. They'd met with Him. And in the reality of that meeting, their faith is confirmed. Then notice, last thing here, notice Jesus serves them. Did you see that? Look at verse 13. This this is really sweet. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and so also the fish. So just ask the question, in this scenario, who does the serving here? Jesus does. He is serving them. 
Just like He promised, by the way, Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly, I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. Do you realize, now that's an eschatological thing. It's looking forward, but, but there's a reality of it coming into their lives right here and now, as often happens. I mean, do you realize what a magnificent grace this is? Jesus the Lord gives Himself in fellowship to His people. I mean, do you see the magnitude of His love here? Hey, let me feed you. Sit down there. Let me, let me care for your needs. Let me, let me show you the full extent of my love for you. I mean, what a, what a picture this is. And you know, again, their minds had to flash back to a couple of things. First, I mean, just bread and fish. Does that ring any bells for anybody here? I mean, it's a virtual replay of John 6.11 at the beginning of His ministry, the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, distributed it to the crowd that was seated there, also the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. How could they not see it? What a wonderful provider Jesus is, just as He did before. Now He's doing with them today. He is able to do it. He is generous in doing it. What need can we possibly have that He cannot meet as we draw near to Him? By the way, well, we'll wait on that. Second, and it says, and He took the bread. Just look at the phrase, and He took the bread same words used in the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 24.30. When He was at the table with them, He took the bread and He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Again, they had to see it. This, this picture of the self-giving of Christ. He doesn't just give bread to eat, but in the giving of the bread, He is giving Himself. He, he laid down His life for us. And He continues to feed us day after day, week after week, as we continue to draw near to Him. I mean, among the many things that are being pictured, that's one thing you should see every week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christ is taking the bread and He's giving it to us as a symbol of His own presence, as a symbol of spiritual nourishment, as a symbol of His love for us. And John ends his account in verse 14 saying this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to His disciples after He was raised from the dead. Three times now He has come to them. Three times to make it really firm in their minds. Three times to make it really certain for them. Christ our Lord is risen from the dead. He's not some fictitious, mythical deity, some stone god on a hilltop who can do nothing for us. He is the living, risen Lord. And we can know Him. We can know Him in reality. We can trust Him for His promises. We can be sure that He is present, that He will not stop coming to us in our need, that He wants fellowship with us daily, and He will provide all we need to know and walk with Him faithfully to the end. He gives us our life and fruitfulness as we draw near to Him. Let's pray. Father...
how tenderly and wonderfully you work with your people here, even these men who just a few days before had run like scared rabbits, even denying you. And yet in your mercy you will not deny them. You draw near with tokens of your love and grace. You draw near with reminders of your forgiveness. You draw near with sustaining bread and fish, Lord, to provide what they need to serve you. And Lord, we stand with them now receiving these things from your hand as we look to you. Help us, Lord, to see your presence. Help us, Lord, to desire that presence as Peter did. Help us, Lord, to trust in Your provision for our needs even now. And help us to see that our real need is not these things that we clamor after, but more than anything, our need is You to be near. Because when You're near, we have all that we need. Lord, chase away our doubts, our fears, our unbelief. Bring us to Christ by faith that we may have in Him all that is needed. For His name's sake, we pray. Amen.